We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to episode 200. When I started Watch with Jen just before lockdown in 2020, I never thought I'd get here or that anyone would be remotely this interested in listening to me talk about movies. I am so grateful to my friends for joining in, the first guests for signing on and putting their vote of confidence into me and the show, which helped a great deal. And I want to just thank you so much for your listenership, participation, and support from the bottom of my heart over the years. I know some of you have been here from the very, very humble beginnings. I used to record this on like voice memos on my phone, essentially. And then I started to slowly improve the technology and hopefully the quality of the show. I know that I'm still learning and continuing to improve. And I hope you'll stay tuned and enjoy the future of the podcast and what's to come. My goal is to just keep continuing to celebrate movies and sharing something positive with the world of this art form we are all so passionate about. Thank you again. Returning to the podcast this week, we have the impressive critic, in-demand lecturer, and insightful author Mr. Adam Naiman, who longtime listeners will remember hearing last summer around this time as he joined me to discuss mind control movies and the summer before we tackled actress Jean Tierney, a contributor to The Ringer, Criterion, Cinemascope, and The New Yorker. Additionally, our Toronto-based guest has written thoughtful books on showgirls, Ben Wheatley, the Coen brothers, Paul Thomas Anderson, and David Fincher as well. Well, Adam, thank you so much for returning to the podcast. It's always a pleasure and an honor, and I love talking movies with you. So how are you doing, and how's your summer been going? The summer is uh, running out at an alarming rate. Uh, (laughs) Shuttle uh, my oldest daughter to different camps and our youngest to daycare and then in the intervening six hours try and focus to write on something but you know it's 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 fine if your listeners don't know i'm in toronto which is you know much like your united states uh you know suffering through a uh, great heat and yeah. lots of, you know climate and climate adjacent anxiety so um you know we, but 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 what we're fine the toronto blue jays are are, are are looking solid. The Toronto Film Festival is is coming up. It's a nice time of year to do something like this, not just because I always love coming on your podcast, but doing a dive in something not contemporary is yeah. uh, a determined kind of research-driven dive into something not contemporary is nice because we're about to be hit with quote-unquote all the movies that matter in a given calendar year. And I've really enjoyed just watching and and being in, you know, like the, the, the 50s and the 60s for the purposes of this podcast for the last couple of days in terms of what I've been watching. So That's wonderful. Yeah, I always love, um, I, I compare it to taking a new film survey course uh, yeah. with every guest. And yeah, I actually am 
recording you're the first but like four over the next week because for whatever reason this was a good time for a number of my guests and so it was really cool to be able to kind of jump back and forth between like Burt Lancaster and I've got Pakula and De Palma movies coming up and then Elvis movies so it was nice to kind of take some yeah yeah some swings back and forth Yes. And I was really excited. You're always so generous um, with your your time and your interests. We share a lot of similar tastes. But when we were talking about doing this again, uh, you said, is there anyone you're interested in? And at the time, somebody had suggested Bert. And I was just thinking, Bert Lancaster, do you have an interest? And you immediately latched on to, yes, I like Bert Lancaster. So um, you know, one of our most incredible classic film stars. What do you think it is about him and what he brings to film that makes him so unique? Well, it's funny. This is very specific remembrance uh, uh, about talking about this podcast was, I think I tweeted something the morning we, we made our decision about a different actor. I tweeted something about Montgomery Clift, who I was looking back on for a different yes. project I was working on. And I'm not about to hijack this by talking about Clift at all, just to say. Oh, that. I love Clift. Yeah. Of course. And that with Montgomery Clift, I feel like there is a kind of obsessive, not, I'm not talking about like Stan culture or, you know, people finding, <laughs> you know, classic actors hot or anything like that. But I feel with Clift, because of the tragedy of his life, there's this incredibly thick amount of scholarship and a lot of people who, you know, try and write about the legacy of his acting, the influence of acting, and a lot of para cinematic writing on him, like about star persona and tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I thought that it's interesting that with Lancaster, there's nothing particularly tragic in the life. There's nothing particularly mythological in the life. He's not romanticized as one of the great method actors. Mm-hmm. He's not put alongside some of these kind of human wrecks that you have in his generation. You know, he's really kind of like a tough, durable star, a bit like his friend Kirk Douglas, who was even more yes. durable with how long he lived. Yeah. But but with Douglas, then what you end up talking about in some ways is the stuff that's a little less poetic and a little less sentimental and a little less personal, but very what I'm into, which is very critical, analytical, which is like the way he used his instrument as an actor. Yes. And the fact that in his way, he's an incredibly skilled technical actor mm-hmm. who had that ephemeral charisma that people like to romanticize about movie stars. And in his case, was absolutely true, mm-hmm. a little more versatile than the norm. You know, yeah, really kind of fascinating when you look at the range of parts, the number of different kinds of people he could play kind of credibly. And the other thing, I don't know how how you feel about this. It'll be interesting based on the movies we've chosen to see where this does or doesn't apply. While being incredibly famous and singular, his celebrity never overwhelms what he's doing in a movie. I can think of one or two examples where the symbolism of him being Burt Lancaster, I guess, does matter. But there's some actors like John Wayne. Yeah, you're not shaking that persona. No. No, no. And Lancaster, while I would not call him nondescript, and I wouldn't even call him a chameleon necessarily, he is a major American actor, really. Like, he should be on any list of the 20, 25 major American actors of the 20th, 20th century. But he doesn't overwhelm his various roles. And that's an interesting thing to talk about. It really is. I love that you pointed that out right away. Um, and you brought up Kirk Douglas. And you used the word singular because the book that I found at the library was A Singular Man, which was more yeah. of a coffee table book than a, a true biography, but I enjoyed it. And one of the quotes came from Kirk Douglas talking about how he was able to do tough and tender, the sensitive and the strong kind of at the same time and how unique that was and how he kind of shaped that and it was rare and i think you know he was willing to take all of these risks he started out um you know with noir of course like the killers launched him but he also had that physicality of being you know uh an acrobat and a trapeze artist and a circus performer in real life before he became a star and he wasn't willing to pigeonhole himself you know he was i think because uh he was able to generate his own material and stuff he was always challenging himself and he was never super vain about it which is great i mean he was uh kind of a force to be reckoned with there's a lot of great stories about that but but i do love that 
that idea that he wasn't, um, you know, like an Elvis or a John Wayne, where it's really hard to shake that when you're watching them. Yeah. Well, I like I like that you brought up vanity because, and this is where it, it can be fun. I think sometimes I, I know your guests like to do this on the pod, or it's fun to do on Twitter, where you have that kind of thirst. Not I don't mean you, the royal us. We have a oh, thirst. Yeah, yeah. A thirst-inflected way of talking about movie stars. Yeah. You're kind of caught between, you know, any criticism that overly, you know, sexualizes or physicalizes actors is is walking a thin line. But it's frankly also fun to do. And there's yeah. some actors where it's impossible to not do it. And so you mentioned vanity with Lancaster. And I would argue when you're as handsome as he is, it almost transcends vanity. Yeah, that's true. You know? It kind of transcends vanity where he knows what he looks like oh absolutely and and there's some and some actors i think whether they were insecure about their talent relative to their appearance or you know some people who are just really vain you know they made their appearance kind of the locus of what they did on screen i think in some ways mm -hmm. he's so classically handsome and so physically strong that he didn't feel a need to flaunt those things in every role that he did so you have those early parts where as you say in noir you know he would play heavies or henchmen or whatever and that's just a fact of his intimidation yeah. and his size but as he goes on the way his body is displayed in some of those later parts um you know it's a very multifaceted way to use one's handsomeness i mean we'll get to the swimmer which i think oh yes my favorite example of that but even in something like um the leopard, you know, he's able to embrace this kind of regal, middle-aged physicality that's also a little bit deceptive, mm -hmm. or that has something that feels like it's a little bit busted up inside. And that's not vanity. Whatever it is, it's not vanity. It's an awareness of his physicality, but he's willing to play against it or let it play against him a little bit. Yes. And at the same time, he isn't one of the, like to use modern examples, I always say that um, sometimes our really handsome movie stars like to play ugly on purpose yeah. uh, in order to kind of like counteract that. You know, you have Christian Bale and American Psycho, he's using his um, beauty essentially in a horrific way. Uh, we had Aaron Eckhart playing monsters, Patrick Wilson. Um, Russell Crowe, you know, to use people who are classically handsome, Jude Law, as he's gotten older, has started kind of going against that. And uh, so Lancaster wasn't really going that far. He wasn't necessarily seeking out these parts, but he was using his physicality in and what he looked like in a fascinating way. Yes. And I love that. Um, for Sweet Smell of Success, which is uh, the first movie we were going to talk about, he got to wear his own glasses and they yeah. put like a little thing of Vaseline over them so he wouldn't be able to focus 100%. And so he kind of would always look shifty and they were shooting him from, you know, above or below to get those shadows. And so it it's a fascinating, um, you know, array of what this like he's a great looking man but playing against that in the 50s yes well we should say that by the i mean even before we get to sweet small success maybe not that far before but it's funny to start there it's where we agreed to start and we should i don't think that we're going to go into detail but in the earlier movies but by let's say the mid 50s right mm -hmm. this former acrobat this former basketball player and believe me i looked for as much as i could Yes. The basketball player, I didn't find much, but I love that idea of him as a sort of, uh, you know, an early, early adopter of the game. Yes, uh, he got a scholarship yeah. for it to NYU and got oh, bored. Yeah, scholarship, you know, stint in, in, in the military. Not I'm not not trying to skip skip through this in in, in broad no. search, but just to say that the genre that he never connects to and it's, it's maybe because he's a little young, although he could have done it because he would have been in his 20s or or 30s in the in the in the 30s and 40s. He's never a screwball guy. No, right? that's a good point. Yep. He 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 goes to New York after being in the army. In some ways, as I remember reading, sort of ambivalent about acting, he does some stuff on stage, which is where he finds his agent, Harold Hecht, which is, becomes important in terms of the company that he forms with 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 yes. Hecht. Right? I love and that then, he got Hecht after only being on this in this play for like he got the play because he was in the elevator at the right time visiting yeah. his girlfriend, and then he gets the play, and three weeks later he gets an agent, which is crazy. Yes. 
gets an agent and meets Hal Wallace and moves yeah. to LA. And suddenly everyone wants to put him in these movies in these small parts. And he's working with, you know, Robert Sidmack and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and Richard Brooks. He becomes friends with Kirk Douglas. I mean, the, the, you know, he's great in, in sorry, wrong number with Barbara Stanwyck, where she's yes. a older and he has a, you know, a pretty memorable, uh, you know, pretty memorable part, part, part in that. Yeah. Um, the husband. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the husband as, as Barbara Stanwyck's kind of go and go into paranoid pieces. Point being that he never really interacts with screwball. No, that's a good point. Kind of bypasses in the first round of things, you know, bypasses uh, Westerns. He's almost also past the swashbuckler genre like he gets to yeah. do it when he makes a, li- a couple of them yeah yeah when, when he makes flame in the arrow in in 1950 where he's drawing on all those acrobatic skills from his youth and where his old friend you know nick cravat comes and works with him on the movie you know both mm-hmm. as an actor and i think just as kind of like you know support and training for all the swashbuckling and the tumbling it's just all these movies he kind of doesn't make right yeah. and then you know crimson pirate makes him a huge star and so does from here to eternity, which we talk about the iconic use of his his body. I mean, his body on oh, the Oh, yes. The beach scene. The beach scene. And that's a movie filled with talent. I mean, he's in that mm-hmm. movie with Borgnine and 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 Montgomery Clift, Frank Sinatra. I mean, and he holds kind of place of stardom amongst them. I guess if you were to go back, and I, I don't mean to do the research, but if you were to add it all up, that's the first giant smash that he has. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he sc- had a couple hits, you hits. know, like right before yeah. this Veracruz, he got to, you know, use a scowl and do different things. And the killers was a hit. It launched him and Ava Gardner. But overall, no, you're right. It was from here to eternity, like major. Yeah. And and so all these parts where even if he misses screwball and kind of barely yeah. the Western and and intersects a little bit with adventure films, he still manages, even in these genres where it's not necessarily front and center, to put himself, his strength, his body, that that vigor that you talked about, so that by the time you do get to Sweet Smell of Success, he's stretching himself as an actor, but limiting his virtues or his or his obvious strengths as an actor, because he's immobile, right? Yes, and it's all, like all dialogue, yep. All dialogue, all seated. Mm-hmm. The character he's playing, I mean, we'll summarize the movie for anyone who hasn't seen it, though I think it's probably among your listenership, it's probably a pretty well-covered movie because it's a classic. <laughs> but, you know, he's this this vicious, you know, Walter Winchell mm-hmm. type, type figure. He kind of, you know, makes and breaks. Yeah, uh, columnist. Makes, mm-hmm. Yeah, makes and breaks people's careers as a, as a columnist. He's a kind of aspirational figure. For the the press agent Sidney Falco, who who wants to be like like JJ Hunsecker, but one one symbol of Hunsecker's strength in the movie is that he like he won't even turn his head to talk to people. No, right? yeah, yeah. Once he starts freezing out, Tony Curtis was a good friend of his, and Tony Curtis is playing against his pretty boy image too. And yeah. uh, you know, once he starts freezing out the character uh, who he uses, like tools he uses people all the time, he won't look at him, or he, you know, he's just like in command of every every scene. And yeah, he'll look at and, you. He won't look at you. He'll make or break you. Yep. And it's a part that Lancaster wanted because he acquired yeah. material from. Uh, from Ernst, from uh, Ernst, Ernst Lehman, um, the, the novelette Sweet Small Success, he acquired it for that company we talked about, which was um, yeah, Hill Lancaster, mm-hmm. which is in a tradition that he didn't invent. I mean, right from the beginning with United Artists and 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 you know Chaplin. I mean, you have these these actors who sort of style themselves as moguls, mm-hmm. you know, insulate themselves against the industry and you know against typecasting or miscasting or complete fealty to studios but i mean it's it, we should note too that lancaster's pretty good running his studio i mean in 1955 they made marty yes which won, which, which won best picture yeah you know, and, oh and my gosh up, opened Amazing up these film. relationships mm-hmm. yeah with, with writers like patty chayefsky but on sweet Smell of success you know he's the one who sought out this little story 
mm-hmm. that uh, Lehman had had written a magazine story that was based on his experiences working with Irving Hoffman, who was a columnist for The Hollywood Reporter, which was really scandalous and really kind of juicy. And yeah, they- and it he was so angry that he stopped talking to Lehman for like a year and a half a because and a half, of it. Yeah. yeah. And they had the they had both the autonomy this company and the intelligence to go hire Alexander McKendrick, who was kind of adrift after Ealing closed yes. down in the early fifties. They brought in this smart British director, and then for the script, not only do they have this great raw material from Lehman, who I believe I remember got sick and couldn't write the script, like they had an offer to Patty Chayevsky. That's the Marty connection. And then they actually went even higher. They got like Clifford Odets. I know it's crazy. And he, like, at first they said he was going to finish it in a couple weeks, and it took months. And he was writing while they were working. And yes, so there's this idea of Lancaster as the star producer, which would become an even more recognizable archetype about a decade later because that's what the Warren Beatty's yeah the Rock Redfords sort of did I mean maybe not starting their own full production companies but creating these kind of structures where they could not mm-hmm. only make themselves look good as actors but they could kind of control mm-hmm. you know so you're right that he had so much I mean Tony Curtis was his good friend and he gave Curtis a great part Yes. Yeah. He said, you know, he'd always wanted Tony to, he felt like Tony was being limited and knew that he really had it. And I mean, some can argue it's Tony Curtis's movie, really. And I think he even said that it is Tony Curtis's movie, but it's one of Lancaster's best performances by far. And I love one of my favorite things. I think probably the greatest thing I learned this week is that he would try to get through one book every day uh, in his life as an adult. Um, People said that they could often find Lancaster in a robe and listening to classical or opera and reading. And he would just pour over books all the time. And so you do see his reverence for the written word throughout his whole um, career. And so I love that you brought up, you know, Chayefsky with Marty and Odette's. He was somebody really seeking out, um, material and falling in love with scripts first and so kind of that classical uh, idea but he wasn't like you said a classically trained actor and uh it was cool he used his you know independent production company to help get these things made yes yeah and and i mean while it's not i mean it's a movie i mean it has classic status the movie that i think it resembles in some ways not narratively and not not stylistically but you know it, anecdotally it's funny because orson wells was considered briefly unsecker yes. there's an aspect of citizen kane to it in the sense i mean not not again not structurally not cinematographically no. but the idea of it being a barely veiled attack on this very powerful and influential person and by extension, a kind of attack on the industry. Yes. You know, like it's not considered a Hollywood film because, of course, it's set in New York. And to quote, you know, my favorite movie, they came together. New York really is a character in the movie. But it, <laughs> has, it has a subtext to it where even though the characters in it, you know, the the actors and the media people are fictional, it's kind of a movie about Hollywood. It right? is. Even, yeah. Even though it's set in New York, it's it's about uh, favoritism and nepotism, red and scares, yeah, red scare with the way they try and tarnish the reputation. And he is sort of bland. I mean, it's very much like a Shakespeare play in that the ingenues, the lovers, are kind of bland. The character, yes. is her sister, and the mm-hmm. the lover that Sidney Falco is sort of trying to keep her from taking mm-hmm. out of Hunsecker's possessive, almost incestuous kind of control. Yes, yeah. Sister. It's, it's a little bit of a Greek tragedy in that respect. Yes. Yeah, that 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 stuff is. I mean, it's all written very specifically to the world of the film. But yeah, you're right. It has implications, particularly the way they try and tarnish him in the film for yeah. his political sympathies, and they try and suggest that he's kind of a a drug addict. Even the fact that you're mm-hmm. talking about a jazz musician means, without bringing race into it, there's a kind of racial. Mm-hmm. And it's also a movie that really has no. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you thought of it, but it doesn't really have a moral to it or it's not moralistic. It's no, not at all. It's quite fatalistic, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nothing good happens. (laughs) No, it it really is. I love movies that take place over one night and you brought up citizen Kane. It does feel like that. I was also thinking it kind of 
again, not plot or anything, but the way it was shot and just uh, a little bit like the Naked City. Um, yeah, in, yeah. In a, in, you could kind of see those two playing in a double feature, even though they're different films. Uh, I love uh, that it it almost works like jazz. I mean, I love the score by Elmer Bernstein, amazing score, but it's it's very staccato. The dialogue is super stylized, even yeah. the way it was shot. Like they talked about these scenes that had no cuts and would go on for six minutes and weave in and out and zooms close up. Uh, James Wong house cinematography is amazing. And how a lot of it was the technical precision and the crew was sweating bullets because they knew if they messed up in the middle, like they would blow the take. So it would just go on for five or six minutes. And, you know, he'd never worked like that and never, like you said, he skipped over screwball. So he'd never had like pages of dialogue to pour over really quickly. Yeah. Well, and it's such concentrated acting because you would think that when you play mm-hmm. and the thing about Hunsaker was such a great name and you know, the code. Yeah. The Coens are taking notes for Hudsucker Proxy when they have a J.J. Hunsucker, you know, it's so it's yeah. so Yeah, and I'm a J.J.J., so I love this. You're yeah. J.J.J. <laughs> but, but, I mean, but a character like that, you would think there's so many ways that an actor could play it successfully where if you play him slimy or if you play him almost as kind of like this gluttonous, you know, satyr with this huge appetite. And Lancaster, he finds something else. He plays him as a guy who's almost drained of vitality it's almost like he's seeking vitality through quietly messing with everybody it's like a vampire almost you know yeah (laughs) dorian gray but like you know making everyone ugly yep like a a new york a new york vampire and 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 you and and again i i can't think of too many shots in that movie in my memory where you see him anything of him you know where he's not seated or leaning or reclining mm-hmm. or, or or driving so i mean that's what i associate as i associate that kind of coiled power and yes. when you, and when you bump ahead not to skip all the movies in between but when you look at him in the leopard which is an incredible mm-hmm. movie for him to have made i mean just the fact that he working with visconti on this giant yes. epic mm-hmm. by his own choice he famously told roger ebert ebert was like were you worried that when when Lancaster died, Ebert wrote this very funny eulogy where Ebert, as a young critic, was interviewing him about the leopard. He's like, you know, were you worried that this was going to affect your reputation? He's like, I'm not worried. I'm the one who chose to do it. In fact, yeah. Lancaster said something. Like he chose not to do it because he thought he would look bad as an Italian. And mm-hmm. then when the movie was in trouble, he offered himself to Visconti and said, well, if this is going to get it made. I'll do it. Yeah. But similarly in The Leopard, you get a scent, maybe more of a spent force there than a coiled force. But he suggests so much uh yeah power in that movie without moving a lot mm-hmm. i He's haven't kind seen of it still in 20 some those, years i need to still again. center of a lot of those frames you know yeah and in between of course i mean we didn't choose it as one of our movies but for people who are playing along at home they probably know i mean in, in between all that he did win and he won an oscar yes elmer gantry yeah elmer gantry mm-hmm. which is a really kind of uh pent up tricked up kind of you know snake oil salesman Mm -hmm. kind of performance and you could argue that it's an influence on um i mean there are a lot of movies in that period that kind of have that archetype like it's a good pairing with face in the crowd oh that's a great great point that's a movie i wish more people would see yeah but face 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 in the crowd yeah but he's also similar in the rainmaker right Oh, good point. Yes. If that, which, if my mom, uh, Evelyn, if you're listening to this, my mom loves the Rainmaker. This is the sort of movie that that my 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 mom used to always have on when I was a kid, which oh. is the reason that I would see it. But like Rainmaker and 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 um in uh, uh, Elmer Gantry, he's he's great at playing a confidence man. You know, he's mm-hmm. seductive and hucksterish. There's a little bit of like a proto Daniel Plainview aspect to those characters. In, oh, I love in, that. Yes. In 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 those two movies. And in Elmer Gantry, you know, you have that wonderful archetype of kind of the 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 confidence man who eventually gets brought low. Like he has everyone fooled almost. And then he kind of gets gets seen through. So, mm-hmm. you know, he got he he did get a, be- a best actor Oscar in, in, at, you know, in the early 60s. You're talking about a pretty competitive 
period. So like there is a little bit of hardware there to 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 buttress the the reputation. Yeah, I know. And uh, we didn't choose uh, those films last time. We talked about Frankenheimer with Manchurian Candidate. Yeah. But my one of my favorite collaborations, and he's somebody who did love working with friends, and uh, he was directed by as you brought up Visconti, Visconti twice. Like he he enjoyed or admired someone, he wanted to work with them again. And Frankenheimer, who I think he worked with, like maybe Three five times. times. Well, five times or five? Yeah, you're a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I the train is one of my favorites, and uh, I think that's like one of the best smart action movies. And I wish more people would see the train. Also, uh, Seven Days in May is amazing, and so you know, and also around this time, he made not for Frankenheimer, but he made Judgment at Nuremberg. So sure. yeah, yeah. Which is also which is also a part where, you know, there's a slight, I don't know how much of a risk it was, but I mean he's playing uh he's 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 playing a Nazi, you know, yeah. he's playing someone and he's actually one of the characters, I believe, if I'm remembering the movie properly, he testifies for I mean he he's a he's a defendant, but he at one point he testifies for the prosecution, like he has a confession scene, uh you know he's uh, mm-hmm. about about his about the choices that he made in sentencing uh in in sentencing innocent people to death despite there being no evidence i mean that's only 10 15 years after the fact for hollywood to be dealing with that and that movie is such a parade of movie stars yes you know, every, including clift is, is, is i was just going to say that yeah how perfect yep they're, they're they're all in it but when you mentioned frankenheimer you know i, I we should say too cuz there's so many movies to talk about this is why when we settled on the three we did in Seven Days in May, he does something that's kind of hard, which is he, it's like the Sterling Hayden part in Strange Love, but it's serious. Yes, that's a right? really good point. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Seven Days in May, he's this general who kind of has this mutinous, uh, you know, this this mutinous uh plan this this coup that he's trying to plan because of his his convictions and his beliefs and you have that movie fail safe and strange love all kind of telling a similar story all coming out in the same year and mm-hmm. i know seven days in May tends to be a little undervalued because it's more earnest and serious but there's great scenes of lancaster in that oh movie my gosh. And, yes. and frederick, frederick march is the president and yeah it's more sober than kubrick but you know, it's a, it it had at least as much of a finger on the anxieties and the the zeitgeist as as Kubrick and and Lumet did. Yeah, that's such a good point. And um, you know, talking about Frankenheimer too, he made Young Savages. That might have been their first. I can't remember. And uh, I think which I've never the, seen. Uh, I saw it, but like ages ago. And I guess the dialect coach, I think, was Sidney Pollock. So that's how he met him, who became a collaborator. Yeah, and went on reshoots for our next movie the swimmer yes yeah i was going to say pollock is sort of an unsung or or semi-uncredited yeah. hero of the movie i mean i must say this is the movie that i was looking forward to talking to the most so we should sort of dive 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 yeah, into it i'll let you take the intro on that for sure well it is this film uh there's a guy on um a guy a friend of mine who i'm sure you follow on twitter also do you know darren hughes or do you follow darren hughes yes Mm-hmm. So I was I was looking at reviews of the swimmer the other night on Letterbox. Just just like how many I'm just wondering how many of my friends have seen this because like in my household this movie is canon. You know my mom mm-hmm. loves it. It's such an Evelyn movie. It's like late sixties fatalistic you know kind of drama. She loved this stuff. But oh, Darren, I hope she loves this episode. Yes, she yeah, well, <laughs> She listens. But Darren had written about it and he remembered. He said something like. I watched the first half hour of this movie and then I paused it and went to my wife to be like, I have to explain to you like what is going on in this movie because I can't believe this is a whole movie. And he didn't mean it in a bad way. Yeah. He, was just, he hadn't read about it before. And so he was just perplexed, even as someone who watches movies all the time, that a movie could have this kind of a, not just a plot, but just be made this way. So this is, yes. a, this, this is a movie that opens. It's based on a, a story by John Cheever, who wrote it for the New Yorker, mm-hmm. a 12-page story, which you can find online and and read. It's made by an unusual at the period, you know, husband and wife filmmaking team, Frank and Eleanor, uh, Frank Frank and Eleanor Perry. Yes. Uh, she, she was a very politicized, uh, she was a very politicized writer, and, uh, you know, they ended up making Diary of Mad Housewife later. 
But mm-hmm. uh, in the film, you have Burt Lancaster emerge three quarters naked. I mean, four fifths naked. He wears swimming trunks in the movie. That's yeah. it. That's his only costume. Emerging from the woods in Connecticut in a bathing suit. No shoes. Yeah. No shoes. Just shows up at this pool party that he didn't seem to attend, but like eternally he seems to attend. It's like last year at Marion Bad. It's like always the pool party there, it seems. And these are all people yeah, who kind of grew up they're with. They're all having them. With. They're all having them. And he 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 hangs out at this pool party where he was not present, but eternally this seems to be his clique of affluent suburban middle-aged people mm-hmm. and he just decides quite dramatically and with a lot of skepticism that like he can get home we don't know where he spent the night but like he's not home and he's just come out of the woods it's like he can get home by swimming home through all these different backyard swimming pools a river of pools like a river of pools yes. he calls it and mm-hmm. uh he sort of is mapping out this 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 route and everywhere he goes he's encountering these people who either represent the neighborhood mm-hmm. or are figures in his life like this young girl who's very um you know very age inappropriate and you know bikini clad you know 20 year old who yeah. babysat his daughters yeah they go to another a crush on him a yeah. crush on him and then they go to another pool party and there's like an old older nudist couple and then there's a young boy who he tries to teach to swim and then the movie starts just getting so bizarre like there's a public mm-hmm. pool and then there's an empty yes. pool yeah and, and the public pool he feels really out of place and it feels like it you know this is just not a space for him and the class structure changes and then there's an empty pool and he's pretending to swim and you get the sense that like this journey is just taking him totally out of whatever his reality is. And he sees all the flaws in these people's lives, but the big question of like, what is his deal? Yes. (laughs) Really starts to bother us. And by the time he's like walking along the highway without shoes and stuff, you're like, this is obviously not, this is a very existential kind of space that we've been plunged into. And I don't want to spoil the ending although in some ways you know the ending is kind of predetermined i mean i mm-hmm. don't think i don't think anyone who's you know no you, every people, every single pool uh that he visits they seem to know a little bit more and a little bit more about his past and we learn like a clue almost yeah. at every single one it is kind of a traditional hero's journey or a, a don quixote like an odyssey through these pools and i loved i was looking up um old reviews of this movie and uh roger ebert wrote one where he says at every moment we have the feeling that something tragic has already happened to these people we see smiling and of course something has he said uh it's based on the john cheever story from the new yorker it's the sort of allegory that the new yorker favors like assorted characters by john updike and jd salinger cheever swimmer is a tragic hero disguised as an upper-class suburbanite there are a lot of tragic heroes hidden in suburbia perhaps because so many of them subscribe to the new yorker you are what you read i love that yes that's pretty enduring criticism, actually. Yeah. But it, it is sort of a proto version of what would proliferate endlessly in the 80s and 90s, which is that kind of dark heart of the suburbs movie. Mm-hmm. But it's also a rare example of an American movie outside of, let's say, you know, gladiator or wrestling pictures that is solely about the display of the male body. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of female bodies in it. There's lots of very nubile mm-hmm. male flesh. And, you know, if you yeah. ever want to see a young Joan Rivers in a swimsuit, you know, here, 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 here's you, here you go. Yes. Her first role as an actress, like first she played herself, actress. but yeah. Yeah. But you like, you have, um, you have Lancaster as this incredibly fit, hearty, all American specimen who is just slightly to seed or not even to seed. It's just, it it feels somehow inappropriate. First of all, how much prouder and stronger he is with his physique than his friends, because there's a lot of references to the fact that he's still in shape. Yes, but also, but but also a feeling that he is quite broken and vulnerable, and that this very young boy adolescent idea of just heading out into the world 
you know, shirtless, bare-chested, shoeless, and you get to just kind of frolic your way through Eden is not true. There's an empty swimming pool. There's a public pool. There's a highway. There's all these people who are not so happy to see him. Mm-hmm. And he becomes increasingly ridiculous and sad. Yeah. It goes yeah. from this boisterous confidence and this idea of like, oh, what a wonderful way to recapture liberation of youth mm-hmm. to it's this sad itinerant figure. Yeah. And, the, and the way he's filmed is like this almost, it's almost like a, like a nature documentary. He's this majestic specimen, but he's, he's spooked or we're spooked, you know? Yes, he is kind of a wild animal, essentially. And at first, you're not really sure what season we're looking at. And then we yeah. realize it's fall. And you can tell he's getting colder and other people are getting colder, you know, as he's uh, outside and going in and out of these pools. And um, just he gets increasingly vulnerable and almost hunched over a little bit and uh, the way he's shot. And it just it gets sadder and darker. Yes. And there's an amazingly, uh, it's so you know, strange. Mm-hmm. And there's an amazing correspondence. It's a film from 1968. I, I love the fact that you could almost uh, fold the closing scenes of this and Planet of the Apes from the same year over each other, <laughs> just in terms of these symbols of American vitality, sort yeah. of reduced for different reasons mm-hmm. to shirtless, crouching. Agony. I mean, you could play them over each other. It'd be pretty funny. Or swap, <laughs> swap out the endings and they're kind of the same ending. Although I'm not saying the swimmers, it's not a science fiction movie. It becomes a sort of odd species of like horror movie or odd species too of a, we talked about Citizen Kane, like, you know, what is the missing piece in this guy's life? I mean, it is kind of a movie where you're wondering what the rosebud is. And, uh, and, and Lancaster is so, amazing at suggesting someone who is completely together but who has this missing piece or this 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 missing factor holding him together and it's a film that as you mentioned Sidney Pollock was brought in on because it required a certain amount of reshooting and it has a kind of slightly broken style to it it has these little arty longers at times and other times it's shot kind of quite conventionally like it's not a great movie on the level of style but it's also so weirdly stitched together that it almost feels avant-garde or it does yeah and lancaster thought it actually should have gone further he said possibly the reason it it did alienate people at the time i mean it is strange but maybe it should have been stranger because it was too realistic and it needed somebody like a fellini he said yeah. Right. Which is which is interesting that his head would be in that Italian art film yes. space. And we've of course been been holding the the pun not the punchline to the plot, but of course what makes it a fun movie to read about when you read about Lancaster is that he was not a very good swimmer. No, he was terrified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was, ter- he was he was terrified, which speaks, I think, to his toughness. Yes. Right? Yeah, that- took lessons from an Olympian. Yeah. It took lessons from I think a water polo. Uh, coach and 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 swimmer which is you know very lancaster in this idea if he wasn't intimidated or he wasn't sort of put off by 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 difficulty you know by the time the way the movie shot and edited together he he seems like quite a strong swimmer it's a movie that and again this goes back to darren's tweet about it it really kind of has a one-to-one ratio of in its existence like it's the only thing that's kind of like it it's not really a copy of anything and mm-hmm. nothing has really copied it it, but it's such a unique movie. I feel like everyone sort of owes it to themselves to kind of see it once, even if it's a little predictable. And even if to some extent the solution to the psychodrama is a bit hokey, it has such a, a feeling to it. Yeah. And it and and for me anyway, it's the movie where Lancaster is the most affecting because that idea of that incredible solidness and that charisma still being there, but he's letting you see something inside of it that's busted up. And that I think is um a key to unlocking the later half later parts of his career and some of the acting he does in a movie like Atlantic City, where the whole point to the swimmer is it's about middle age and how you kind of can't recapture youth. And in this case, it's not just that he acts well, it's very good casting that allows him to act well. You know? Yeah. It's the right kind of part for someone that age at that point in his career. I was going to ask, have you seen last summer? 
by Frank Perry. Have I seen sorry, have I seen the film Last Summer by Frank Perry? Yeah. I, I've never seen Last Summer. I've only okay. read about it. It's yes. only a year later, right? Uh, it was 69. So yeah, because yeah, this was shot like 66. It took a while. I mean, they kind of, uh, the studio was was disenchanted, left it on the shelf for a little bit and then brought in Sidney Pollack. Um, but Frank Perry's Last Summer is one that was completely new to me. Larry Karaszewski was kind of like alerting everyone that it was on TCM. Oh, and cool. so I just watched it a couple weeks ago. And boy, is that one disturbing. It's kind of like if you take other people at these pool parties, like the <laughs> young teenagers and followed them uh, for the summer, you know, like they're well-to-do. It's sort of like uh, Lord of the Flies um, of these teenage kids, uh, Barbara Hershey. It gets progressively scarier and really scary by the end of it. And it's a movie like I'm not going to be able to shake since I saw it. And I was thinking, boy, if you watch these back-to-back, these sort of golden everybody in bathing suits who are beautiful, but it gets really twisted by the end. Uh, this would be an interesting double feature for sure. Yeah. This is a movie I don't think must have been hugely widely available. No. Uh, it says that the, the prints were lost for years. I don't know if it's ever, I don't know if it was really given a proper DVD release. And it sounds like it was actually originally rated X. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for this, this this rape sequence. So now this is something I'm going to have to. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to track down. Like I think for Frank Perry, I've seen uh, so, some weird ones. Just well, I mean, obviously, I've seen Mommy Dearest because mm-hmm. you know that's sort of a classic, you know, camp whatever. And I've definitely seen Diary of a Mad Housewife and the the the, the play it as it lays, which is an interesting one because it was written by Joan Didion. That's the one I need to see still. Yes, which, which is which is which Tuesday is Tuesday sort of, Weld. I love, but yeah. yes. Sort of a sort of a fascinating movie, but yeah, the swimmer does have this reputation for being kind of broken and co-directed. After the fact, also it's got an interesting little bit of trivia. You can see production stills, but there's a sort of really important character in the film, uh, uh, Shirley Shirley Abbott, this uh, woman who he goes to to see a stage actress that he'd had an affair with. Yes, original the original role was played by Barbara Loden. Mm. around roughly the same time that she would have been making uh wanda and then she was uh replaced by an actress named janice rule making her debut so if you look online you can find stills of lancaster filming with with barbara loden and then she you know she's played played by someone in the differently differently in the film Oh, that's fascinating. Yes. And it's, it's a role like she's playing an actress who was the other woman, someone he had an affair with. And you can kind of see like maybe that hit close to home for Lancaster. Um, You know, uh, his relationship with like Shelly Winters, just to name one, several people. Um, Yeah. yeah. So I found that whole sequence really interesting and maybe, uh, drawing on some reality there too but we should probably bring it to atlantic city which i know you you brought up as well uh louis yeah. Ball, 1980 that was his uh final best actor nomination so talk to me about that one well yeah i want to say leading up to that maybe not so much the movies though there are some some good ones there like um you know Ozana's. Ozana's Raid, which I know is a movie that Quentin Tarantino loves because he was <laughs> a lot at, uh, and you know, he ended up in some some dreck. I mean, he was in uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau even before Marlon Brando. Yeah, different one. Yes. <laughs> different one. But we should say, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, maybe not talk about it in detail, but you can't not mention with Lancaster, in addition to his sort of um, that upstanding quality he had and sort of forming his own company to try and quality control his career. I mean, he really was a very staunch uh, sort of political figure in Hollywood. Yes. There's a famous line from Ed Asner who said, you know, he he was a liberal with balls. balls. Yes, I love that. <laughs> so, you know, to me, one of the greatest honors an actor can have, even beyond an Oscar, was he was on Richard Nixon's enemies list. The greatest, you know, he was, yeah. He was an opponent of the Vietnam War. He was an anti-death penalty activist. He was um, friends with Rock Hudson, so he joined the fight against AIDS, which is pretty significant because even in liberal Hollywood, 
in the early 80s, that was something that people were really sensitive or tiptoeing. My goodness. Yeah. Yes. You know, even, he even read global. Rock's final words. Yeah. He yeah. Read, read, read Rock's final words. So, in the sense, in the same way that Lancaster sometimes surprised people by having this kind of interest in philosophy, I mean, you said he read the you know, a book a day, mm-hmm. you know, so he was very educated and very worldly and very well read. I mean, he put his political convictions front and center. I mean, even earlier on in periods that we passed, you know, he, he tried to help have the, you know, HUAC abolished. Yes. He, wasn't one of those stars. he wasn't one of those stars who walked back. No, nope, not at all. He, he, you know, he walked it, he, he walked it forward. He was active in the civil rights movement. He hosted a fundraiser for Martin Luther King. He was part of the ACLU. And yet, isn't it funny that I think I, I think he famously told George H.W. Bush, I'm a card-carrying member of the ACLU. The implication yes, he was in the ad. Yeah. The ad, you know, like how wimpy could 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 someone be? Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So you have all that, you have a fairly private, private life. Yeah. I mean. Not that this is something I'm ever usually that interested in talking about. I'm sure he had his affairs and I'm sure he had whatever in addition to his his marriages, but uh, I think three marriages, five mm-hmm. kids. Yeah. But he managed in some ways to guard all of that. So the political stuff was public and the private life was 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 private. So I find that all of that creates a context that doesn't really inform the specific character he plays mm-hmm. in Atlantic City, right? I mean, that's not who he's playing. He's playing a kind of two-bit, uh, I, I don't know what you'd call him, not a not a hood, but kind of a, a two-bit kind of wannabe. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, a wannabe, uh, somebody who watched the gangster pictures and, yeah. you know, my whole life all I want it was to be a gangster, essentially like a Goodfellas line. Like, yeah. But but what I but what I mean is in the same way that Lancaster projected a certain quiet integrity in his life, he gives this character, uh, uh, Lou. I forget the character's last name. Uh, yeah, a code. Lou. Yeah, yeah. He gives him integrity, mm-hmm. even though almost everything about him in some ways is kind of pathetic. Yes. You know? Yeah. Like yeah, like his relationship small... with the the Kate Reed character, who yeah, you know, she's always mistreating, but he, he has a sense of responsibility. Yes, and he's trying to impress and seduce and protect this much younger woman played by Susan Sarandon, and she gives such an interesting performance because she's only thirty five at that point, but she never seems like a naif you know i mean she's mm-hmm. it's an age gap movie and a may december movie and all that which it's very aware of but but she's a pretty a pretty tough living character too this, yes this, this, and this they're this. real about it too yeah. like um you know these people i mean not to spoil too much but this isn't going to be a, a 100 happy ending or they're not going to walk off in the sunset together yeah no no, not not really. And it has all these wonderful specificities to it that I guess most good movies have, but you appreciate them, like the specificity of her character being from Saskatchewan. You know, I'm a Canadian. Yeah. Yay, and it is a Canadian kind of co-production. She's working in this oyster bar. She wants to be a blackjack dealer. There's this bag of, uh, you know, this bag of cocaine that kind of ends up, you know, being passed between her and the, the Lancaster character who she who she meets and who's kind of pining for or or wants her. And the plot never really gets too much bigger than that. Nope. You know, she has a husband character. uh, I think he's played by Robert Joy. Yes. Who is Jimmy in Desperately Seeking Season. Exactly. He's kind of a dummy and he kind of gets Mm -hmm. a dummy's comeuppance in a movie like this. And that sort of shifts her towards, the Lancaster character, but the plot doesn't really get that complicated. What happens yeah. is as, as he asserts himself, he kind of enters into these fantasies that he's always had, but you see how those fantasies look at the end of one's life. And they're really not so heroic. Mm-hmm. You know, he, yeah. he, he has a scene with Sarandon and he was nominated for an Oscar. I think this yes. was the scene that he was nominated for where he kind of confesses, in a way that's both weirdly melancholy and kind of almost apologetic that like after he, he, he shoots somebody in the film, he said, that's the first time that he'd ever killed mm-hmm. anybody. Yeah. 
it's it's such an oddly it's such an oddly placed scene because this isn't a movie that makes the audience feel great about him for killing somebody but it does feel like a sort of late act of potency and then yeah no one kind of but no he's one is, so proud of it too well that's just it he's so he's so proud of it but you see in some ways how not maybe not sick but sad that mm-hmm. that sense of accomplishment is um and so much of the movie is really just him with sarandon and this bond between them which is romantic and sexual but also you know just very kind of protective and humane and it really is one of louis mal's duet movies because it was the same year or one year after my dinner with andre wallace sean has a little cameo in this one as the a waiter. waiter yes i was so excited to see him i was like oh my goodness yes I mean, obviously very different films than My Dinner mm-hmm. with Audrey. That same focus and attention on human behavior and the give and take of of, of dialogue. And um, as you say, the characters don't end up going off into the sunset together. There is a wonderful moment of grace at the end yes. where he he knows that he's not going to walk off into the sunset with this younger woman, but he allows her her own version of escape mm-hmm. or her own version of a happy ending. Even if it's not going to be with him, it's very moving, you know, yes, and it, when he finally lets her know that he knew she was going to leave, like make sure you get rid of the car. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's a, it, it, it's a film that ended up doing, uh, I mean, I think, Unless I'm wrong, Louis Mal was not just coming off my dinner with Andre. He was coming off of the incredible controversy of Pretty Baby, right? With Sarandon, yeah. With, with so with, with with Brooke Shields, so mm-hmm. he uh, he was sort of you know trying to make something small. It was made with a lot of Canadian money. It was in that period of a lot of you know Canadian co-productions during the tax shelter years, and it ended up being this huge critical smash. You know? Yeah, Sarandon was the one that kind of put it together. He'd been reading scripts, not finding anything, and she was friends with the playwright who wrote the script yeah. and said, why not this? Because I think he needed, it was kind of like a, a man under the gun. He needed to make a movie before 1980 for, for tax yeah. or reasons. Yeah. Yeah, well, our the history of our national cinema is one of tax loopholes and shelter. <laughs> But um, when you look at the sort of, you know, critics awards, I mean, Lancaster pretty much swept them that year in, yeah. in, in 19, uh, 1980. I mean, he won best actor from the thing from the Los Angeles film critics and also from the New York film critics. And that's winning best actor in the same year as De Niro in Raging Bull and John Hurt in, in the elephant man. So, you know, that nomination was pretty, pretty, was pretty impressive. Yeah. And, and I think it, 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 did feel um oh you know you know sorry i i i my my mistake he was he would have been nominated for uh 1981 because it mm-hmm. didn't get released until 1980 uh mm-hmm. to, until 1981 which means just for the sake of oscar trivia uh he lost to henry fonda and all and on golden pond that actually makes it sting all the more a little bit, yes. <laughs> although, although Fonda was given the Oscar for a good reason, which was he was old and it was sort of a yeah a, a yeah. late change. But I mean, it, but, but, and then in the eighties, he does have one more wonderful role, which we might want to mention. Oh, local hero, Is local that hero. Have you talked? About, have you talked about that film on the pod before? Years ago on Brightwall Darkroom, I talked about it with I believe Ethan Warren just a little bit. But yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, where he comes in, uh, he helicopters in as this symbol of like American, yes, power. you mm-hmm. know, we have to go all the way through Local Hero. But if you've seen the movie, we, you know, Peter Rieger comes to this little emerald jewel of a place mm-hmm. to develop it, or or to 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 you know do it. Is it mining? Or digging, it, it's something sort of, you know. Un, yeah. Un- Did it have to do with oil or mining? Oil. I can't remember. Oil. Yeah. Oil. And he's charmed by the place. And at the end, his boss flies in from the states, and you're like, "Here we go." You know, this is the big guy from out of town. This is the guy behind mm-hmm. the curtain. It could be like a J.J. Hunsecker figure. Like this is where the power lies. And he comes, and he has all that gravity, and he has all that strength, but he's actually like a very poetic soul, and he yes. just kind of wants to be a stargazer. Yeah, know? I love that. 
I love that. And it's really wonderful casting too, because you know, when Lancaster shows up at the end of the movie, here's the big star, but it's the big star in a self-effacing part. And then I think for a bunch of reasons pertaining to lots of things, including his health, he never really had a late, late, you know, part that was resurgence or 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 part that was particularly famous. I mean, after Local Hero, which is a small film, but a but Mm -hmm. a beloved film in the 80s, you know, he famously shows up in a a very, very strange film, uh, The Osterman Weekend. By, oh yeah, eighty three. Sam yeah. which actually has my favorite cast of any eighties movie. If you all you all you have to do is put Rutger Hauer and John Hurt in the same movie, and it's my favorite. <laughs> uh, and then he shows up, you know, briefly in this. No, not briefly. He shows up in this action comedy, Tough Guys with Kirk Douglas, with where Kirk, they're yes. kind of old dudes. Yes, and, I remember he, that when renting it when it was like kind of newish. Yes. Kind and of Field of Dreams, I think, was his last film. Yeah. Right? Where he yeah. has a similarly kind of ceremonial role. Mm-hmm. Right. Where he yeah. shows up, where he shows up and kind of, you know, as a living connection to the to the past, but not a whole bunch of great late uh of 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 great late parts. But it's just been so fun in talking about them because there's obviously such a versatility of of movies and even some of the movies we've mentioned, except for Sweet Smell of Success, they're not necessarily movies that tend to get canonized on the all-time lists. No, but it's but it's still a pretty robust body of work. It really is. Yes, yeah. And Sweet Smell of Success, I think, is especially a favorite among actors. Uh, I interviewed Griffin Dunn a few oh, months sure. back, and that was the one on the wall behind him, big picture or poster of Sweet Smell of Success. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that I, I I'm sure Griffin Dunn must uh, I'm sure yeah. Griffin must 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 love that movie. No, and and again, this idea of a huge um, a huge personality and a singular kind of person, and yet it feels a little like you're uncovering something and talking about him. And I really think that in some ways that is the lack of melodrama or tragedy around his life. There's a lot of colorful anecdotes. Of yes. Coastal's being a little afraid of him or of him having yes, tempted. this violence or aggression yeah. kind of coiled in his persona. Yeah. But never, but never in the sense of being uh uh you know a real abuser or a oh, real no. by 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 Hollywood standards. Mm-hmm. And, and th- I think that a lot of the pieces that got written about him towards the end, like that Ebert eulogy, they really do find variations on the idea of his own terms, right? Yes. This idea of kind of doing things his way, which turned out uh, to 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 work out very nicely for him. You know, a couple of years ago, I had so much fun talking with you about Gene Tierney, who's such a oh, I love that, yeah. But, but such an opposite case. I mean, this is someone where forces sort of just acted upon them, and and you know, in some ways, their career was compromised by all these things beyond their control. And you look at Burt Reynolds and. It's not about gender essentialism or any difference, but as a male movie star in that period, the control he was able to take of his own fortune kind of made him bulletproof in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yes. And I know we touched on a lot of films along the way and recommended some. Are there any specific, like, do you have a handful you want to make sure like people should seek out? For sure. Well, like I said, you know, my mom would probably yell at me if I didn't tell people to see The Rainmaker, yes. which a kind of rom- I don't know how, what you describe it as, but a kind of romantic Western. And it's Hepburn mm-hmm. at least a good decade before her kind of self-parody period. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, someone's going to be mad that I said that. I, I There's a certain point in me with Hepburn where there's a cutoff and I'm like, now she's playing Catherine Hepburn. A little but, bit. Uh, yeah. Little bit. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> To tie it back to like by the time she hit old on Golden Pond, she was doing that. Yep. Oh, the loons, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, the Rainmaker. I mean, we mentioned Seven Days in May, which especially for people who are interested in uh, either Frankenheimer, who we talked mm-hmm. about last time I saw you with Manchurian Candidate, or even just sixties, you know, paranoia missile yeah. crisis movies. And um, yeah, yeah, and a shout out for uh, shout shout out for Local Hero, which. Is yes. a movement. A lot of my friends who came of age cinephilically in the early '80s, like that, was sort of you know the proverbial you know little charmer indie charmer with a heart of yeah of this kind of movie. Like it was a film festival favorite and award circuit. 
uh, favorite. So yeah, I hope people take this and do some viewing, but I really hope anyone who's intrigued by what we've said about the swimmer checks it out. Cause it's, Absolutely. Um, it's a very unique American movie. It really is. Well, Adam, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's always pleasure. such a joy. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sure we'll find something else to 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 to, to talk about soon enough. And good luck yeah. with your future future episodes of the pod. I'll be listening. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.